0: Welcome to the TAC Podcast. Join us as we discuss highly relevant and compelling acquisition topics with highly esteemed industry professionals and in attempt to share information with you, the 1102 workforce, program officials, and our contractor friends. We hope that you find our topics and discussions helpful and enjoy this episode of TAC Talks. Good day to you all, acquisition community. Hope your procurements are going well. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Tech Podcast. We have an exciting topic that will surely invoke some strong emotions, no matter what side of the table you sit on. And that topic today is the debrief. We are all familiar with debriefs, but the question is, are we getting as much out of them as possible? Debriefings are an important part of the acquisition process, so much so that OMB released a myth busting memo in 2017 devoted to discussing aspects of the debrief. As stated in the memo, debriefings afford offers on a competitive solicitation, an explanation of the evaluation process, an assessment of their proposal in relation to the evaluation criteria, a general understanding of the basis of the award decision and the rationale for exclusion from competition. So we intend to discuss various aspects of the debrief today. And to accomplish that, we have three very qualified guests with us. First, we have Chuck Ross, a division director here at the Tech. Chuck has been a contracting officer with the Army, FAA, and here at the VA. We also have Deborah Clayton, who has been a CEO for over a decade at the Army and here at VA, and one of our most seasoned CEOs here at the TAC. Um, Debbie has been through numerous debriefings and will bring some good perspective into the discussion. And last but definitely not least, we have Melanie Allio from our Office of General Counsel. Melanie has supported the tech and has been in many debriefings with us over the years. Also, first time in podcast history that we have a representative from OGC, which I I do think speaks volumes for uh, our OGC support here at the tech. So uh, thank you, Melanie, and we welcome you all to the podcast today. So uh, let's get started. And um, just to kind of level set everyone, uh, Chuck, would you mind starting us off and just kind of giving us a survey of the uh, debrief requirements across the FAR sections, maybe starting with uh, FAR 15.
1: Sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, so I think it's it's appropriate to point out that depending on which part of the FAR we're contracting in, the debriefing requirements are uh, a little different. Um, FAR 15, uh, contracting by negotiation, uh, sets forth an entire section devoted to the requirements of uh, pre-award and post-award debriefings and uh, what is included and should be included in those debriefings. Uh, just to touch on a few things, so normally the process is when a offeror or a contractor is removed from the competitive range or is not selected for award, they are notified within three days after the contract has been awarded or uh, exclusion from the competitive range by the CO in writing. They then have five days to request a formal debriefing. Now, that can take the... Uh, the form of a couple different ways. It can be a virtual debriefing, it can be an in-person debriefing, or it can be a written debriefing. Um, and depending on which uh, way that is uh, selected or agreed to uh, determines the timeline. Now, a, a pre-award debrief oftentimes uh, will occur before the award is made, and there certain elements that or information that might not be able to be disclosed at that time such as number of offerers that are still within the competitive range and, and things like that. So uh, and a contractor will have to determine whether they want a pre-award or post-award debriefing when eliminated from the competitive range. Typically it uh, also does not extend the time for uh, protests uh, either, the timeline associated with that. So if a pre-award debriefing is selected then uh, the timeline is normally not altered for that. Now, there's certain information that can be revealed within the debriefing or unearthed as part of it. You know, the the government is open and transparent to the best that they can be with the debriefing, and they can provide the overall rankings of offerors, if any rankings are used uh, by the agency, a summary of their uh, rationale for the award, the types of strengths and weaknesses that were assigned to that offeror uh, that is being debriefed. Uh, But then there are some things that cannot be discussed. Uh, in the debriefing as well, such as trade secrets, privileged, confidential information, uh, or any names of individuals that were provided as uh, references on past performance evaluations. So, despite any kind of questions from the debriefing contractor, those types of information should not be discussed in the debriefing.
0: Okay. Now, FAR six. Oops, oops, yeah, sorry. no, you're transitioning right into it. I was going to say FAR 15, probably the most uh, robust yeah, requirements for debriefings and. Uh, Do we treat all FAR sections like that, or uh, are there other requirements? Sound like you're going right into that. So keep going, John. Yes,
1: you're you're correct, Mark. Uh, 15 is the most robust and rigorous section with respect to debriefings. Um, FAR 16 uh, states that a debriefing shall be provided if requested uh, in acquisitions over 5.5 million, Uh, and those are post award debriefings. And then they refer you back to the the information in FAR 15 for the types of information that should be provided in those uh, debriefings. Now, FAR 8, under uh, the federal schedules, most likely, um, that, the debriefing requirement is actually that the contracting officer only provide a brief explanation of the basis for their award, uh, if requested. So there, it becomes a little bit less rigorous uh, when you go to uh, FAR 8. And then 13, FAR 13, I believe, is the least rigorous uh, of all, and it basically states that anything over the simplified acquisition threshold, if the offeror notifies the government that they would like some further information, then the contracting officer can provide that, but not a formal debriefing.
0: Good, good. Thanks for uh, kind of the, the high-level summary and a, a lot in there and a lot with time frames and certain requirements, and definitely if uh, anyone's involved in this, they should go uh, you know, sort through the FAR and, and see exactly where it brings you because it's uh, voluminous and uh, tough to uh, tough to cover every angle um, on a on a quick podcast. But uh, so there's definitely differences between the FAR parts as as you highlighted, Debbie. Maybe I'll ask you this question: If you're in FAR um, 84, if you're on a, a GSA federal supply schedule, um, do you default back to personally? Do you default back to the requirements of FAR 15, or do you try to make it as lean as possible and just do a, an explanation of the award decision as required by 8.4? How do you handle uh, debriefs in FAR
2: 8.4? I try as much as possible to just stick to that brief explanation, but it is kind of an ambiguous term. Um, I, I basically follow the same structure for sort of lack of any other... Uh, type of a format, but um, but we just clearly call it a brief explanation, and um, uh, you know we don't, don't refer to it in any way as a debrief. But in, in terms of setting up a meeting, I do uh, if, if requested. I do set up a meeting to go over the explanation. I've done written or um, phone calls with the FAR eight brief explanations and. I think, generally, if someone asks to speak with us and we can accommodate that, that's that's a better route to go. Um, and just bear in mind that it's uh, any of the FAR 8 acquisitions are protestable at any level, so you're, that's always in the back of your mind when um, when you're uh, sharing information uh, through this brief explanation.
0: That's, that's interesting. So um, I think, technically, if... Uh a brief explanation could be sent in uh, some sort of letter from the CEO, um, detailing you know that explanation. But uh, if they if they requested an oral debriefing, you would most likely entertain that.
2: Yes, I, I think that's a better way to go. I think it's. I feel personally like uh, someone might interpret that as uh, you know being a little bit hedgy and and um, having something to hide so i would rather speak to someone if they ask to speak with me it's just but i you know you always have discretion uh it's up to the contracting officer really ultimately to decide in in any far part how we're going to uh hold that that debriefing it's just i i i think to the greatest extent i try to accommodate whatever is is requested of me particularly around, you know, the end of September and beginning of October at the cusp of the fiscal year, that's when it becomes the hardest for me to accommodate those requests, because obviously you want to comply. You have to comply within certain time frames to the maximum extent practical, you know, to schedule it within, you know, the five days or so. So it's very difficult to do that given the volume of acquisitions at that time of year. So that's that's probably the time of year where I might default to a written debrief.
0: Appreciate that perspective. Um, And I I do want to walk through, you know, the mindset going into one before we get there. Melanie, anything you want to add and, you know, comparing the different far parts and just considerations from an attorney's perspective?
3: Deborah, you you hit the nail on the head when you talked about just being transparent and um, increasing the understanding and and sharing information. I, I think that to me is the the number one most important thing about a debrief. And the more that we can help the, off- the offers understand what we did and-, and increase their confidence in us, the more li- the less likely it is that there's going to be a protest. I can think of um, a debrief that I had in the past that we really didn't take full advantage of that. And, and consequently, there was a protest. The off- and a significant weakness. In the deficiency, there was a mismatch between their their technical approach and their cost approach, and we pointed out the deficiency, and to them, it really looked like a clerical error. There was a different level of effort in in both volumes. Now, what we knew is there there was no clerical error. These problems went all the way through all the volumes. There were different labor categories, Um, and associated with that, we had also given them a significant weakness for a level of effort on a management plan. Now, the offerors were, were looking at this saying, this is a clerical error, and, and you guys were were lazy and foolish. You could have saved so much money had you just allowed us this opportunity to fix this. And we didn't really respond as fully as we should have because what we knew and we didn't share at that point was their management plan, their significant weakness, If we were to have done a most probable, this was a cost contract, a most probable cost adjustment, it would have increased their price well above the successful offerer. And we knew and we could have clearly shown them that what they were calling a clerical error was no clerical error at all. Um, They did file a protest. And once we spelled all of that out for them in the administrative report, they chose to withdraw their protest. And I think that speaks to how, how important those debriefs are and how how beneficial they can be and how we could have saved everyone time and money there.
0: So you think in retrospect, if uh, you provided all that information to the offer in that debrief, they probably would have been satisfied with that and maybe not filed a protest to begin with? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and I guess it's tough to pick and choose those times when you feel like uh, divulging all the information would be helpful as opposed to uh, when maybe you're divulging too much information or just things that you don't want to get into in a debrief. Um, so those decisions definitely have to be made by the contracting officer and the rest of the team as, as you're in that debrief. Um, Chuck, how about you? When you go into a debrief, how do you prepare? You know, What are some things you guard yourself against? What are some considerations you have?
1: Yeah. Well, I think one thing is uh, you have to go in with the mindset of what you want to get out of the debriefing, uh, both from the contractor perspective and the government perspective. Uh, the government, I mean, the, the sole purpose of the debriefing is not only to defend your position and to uh, communicate that with the offeror of how you made that decision, but also to help them so that future proposals uh, will also be more uh quality you know there'll be more better quality and future proposals that this offer might submit uh, which will help in the long run uh, for the government to get what they need uh, from the contractor perspective uh, they need to go in open minded maybe pick up on some tips some things they might have missed that they didn't realize uh, and and try to get something uh, that will help them in the future out of it
0: yeah for sure now how do you how do you go in um uh, Melanie kind of provided a compelling story about open and transparent and um I know that that's definitely from the mythbusters memo there's a call for being open and transparent given as, as much information as you can provide I feel like maybe that's uh that culture has swung back to the open and transparent I know years ago when I was with the army I kind of got a feel that the um The the debriefs were a little more adversarial or combative and you wanted to release as little information as possible because you didn't want to give them anything that maybe they could uh, they could find protest grounds on. And again, maybe that's swinging back the other way. Um, How do you how do you know the right level of information to give them and um, how to be completely transparent, but uh, also not have it lead to a potential protest? So you're right, Mark. Um, whenever uh, I first
1: started, uh, often the guidance that was was given uh, by seasoned contracting officers and contracting professionals was only answer the questions that are asked. Give no more uh, detail because uh, then, you know, potential protesters down the line will just try to pick and, and dig into those answers. Um, I, I, too, have seen the, the pendulum swing a bit uh, now. People want to be totally transparent and open. Uh, We have nothing to hide, uh, the government, in the decision. However, I think that um, sometimes we go in, the government, uh, with our hands tied a little bit. um, We're really not able to tell the full story. The FAR prohibits us from doing point-by-point um, point comparisons of of the contractor's proposal with the winning offerer. Um, I've always been of the mindset that if they could just read my source selection decision right off the bat, see the the winning offerer's proposal, compare it to theirs, fully transparent that I, w- I would um, be able to easily defend my position. But it's difficult because, you know, you really can't divulge trade secrets, a lot of their strengths that the winning offerer saw. So you know the, the company that's being debriefed oftentimes only sees the small portion that we looked at that was their proposal and uh, so so it is interesting you know full transparency it's sometimes difficult to get in the procurement world. I also have uh, had some some situations where you know after you've you've gone in and tried to be fully transparent, you kind of got burned by it. Um, I had one instance at a former agency that I worked with where we went in, we were going to tell the whole story, and it became adversarial right off the beginning. I, uh, you know, it, it actually the adversarial relationship started the moment they showed up with three attorneys, and we walked upstairs, and they started, um, you know, pressing us and saying that we were irrational in our decision, and it just totally. Um, ruin the opportunities that existed for any meaningful discussion in a post war debriefing to the point where security was actually called to break it up. So, you know, after you've experienced something like that, um, you tend to be a little bit guarded in in how you conduct your post war debriefings, um, you know, for
0: future acquisitions. Wow. Uh, Security had to be called in. That's uh, that's incredible. I I feel like over the uh, many decades of experience here, we probably all have those stories. I know when I worked um, at a former agency uh, the the debriefing was a bit contentious and afterwards they accused us when we went to caucus that we closed the door and kept them in a room and turned the heat up so they were they're were very uncomfortable as uh, they waited for us and uh, so you know the goal is to never get to that point of course but sometimes uh, unfortunately it, ju- it just gets there and uh, sometimes in a debriefing you know you have a lot of personalities and you have the person from the vendor side that wrote the proposal and they're probably a bit defensive as we're critiquing it and maybe even showing deficiencies of things that they grossly misunderstood and and, uh, misproposed to and uh, you know you can understand that and you have the technical evaluator on the government side if they're a part of it and the contractor, um, you know, is probably trying to pick apart all the evaluation that they did, and they have pride in in writing. So uh, sometimes it's tough not to go down that path. But uh, of course, the goal is for it to be a positive event for everybody. Um, and uh, Deborah, any uh, any other thoughts on just preparing to go in and how transparent you can be, and um, you know, also guarding yourself, um, trying to make it a successful debriefing for everybody?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's like Chuck said. There's only so much information that we can share, and I found that. Most often, uh, what the a disappointed offer is looking for is that point by point comparison. How did they get to that price? What do you mean? What did they propose? Exactly? what was their approach? and those kinds of things that we can't share. And I always say, you know you just like you wouldn't want me to divulge uh, information inappropriately to one of your competitors, I'm gonna you know afford the same. Courtesy in this situation, and and I'm not going to um, get into their trade secrets or their approach or their uh, details of their pricing. But I think um, mainly you just want to go into it and say, you know, it, it's part of the process. We're we're all interested in fairness on both sides, and you know, work within the constraints that that we are required to within the regulations. And you know, share with, share as much as you can share. Um, I copy down all the questions. I ask for questions in advance so that maybe we can give some thoughtful responses. Um, you know, before a meeting occurs, and um, we caucus separately and go over you know our our responses uh, again, so we can be share as much information as we can. Ultimately, your your hope is that the goal for the offer is to get a better proposal the next time, like Chuck said. Like, that's that's supposed to be, um, you know, what, what we're after and what, what we're getting through. And I, I also keep in mind that in, in many cases, if I have a rapport already with some of these folks that I'm meeting with, I, um, you know, we we already know each other. We already understand each other. Um, it's not going to be that contentious. I, I mean, I don't expect it to be, but I'm not going to take it personally if there is a, a protest you know, again, it's part of the process. It's it's neither good nor bad. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be interpreted negatively. Our our goal is always to have a protest that is denied. Um, but even sometimes when we when we try our best, we, we don't get to that result. Um, so I I mainly just want to you know stick to what I I can say understand my requirement, understand my tech reports. It also goes back to when you're in your evaluation process, are you ensuring that your technical evaluators understand that they're going to be held to account for all the, um, you know, um, criticisms that they're leveling against someone's, you know, proposal? Like you said, Mark, they have pride of authorship. And so people can be personally offended. They might have been working on that for, you know, more than a month if it started, in the market research phase, they might be really, really wedded to this and really counting on it. And it's, it could actually literally be uh, mean whether they have a livelihood. So, so just, you know, be courteous and respectful, share as much as you can, understand your um, requirement, understand your evaluation, understand the contents of your debrief before you present it. And you know that's that's the best that you can hope for, really.
0: Yeah, you said something interesting there. Um, do you have a rapport with the vendor already? And not that we can have a rapport necessarily with every vendor, especially on some of these where we get just a number of proposals. in. but um, as a contracting officer, um, do you communicate with industry well? I think that gives some confidence that uh, um, you are going through the process uh, correctly. If in the uh, pre-solicitation phase, if if you never take questions and provide answers and you never expose yourself to discussions with industry during the market research portion and then you go down this, you know, the source selection and you render an opinion and you've just been the man behind the curtain the entire time, there's probably going to be a level of distrust where they feel like they really need to peel things back and maybe even protest to find out more information. But if you've been pretty transparent and, uh, and open and honest with all all your dealings, and uh, you do have that rapport to some degree with vendors, they may have a little more trust in that. And even if they disagree, perhaps, um, you you know, they don't see it as grounds to protest. They're they're probably still going to be upset for sure, but uh, they're not going to bring it to uh, the the protest level. Um, Melanie, I'll kick it back over to you. Any other uh, considerations from an OGC standpoint? And even like as we decide within uh, within the debrief, Um, The decision to you get a question back, do you stop in caucus versus just dialogue um, kind of, you know, free flowing back and forth? I mean, what are from an attorney's perspective, what are the advantages and disadvantages of making it seem like we have to go behind the curtain, drop a a formal answer and then provide it versus feeling a little more casual with it?
3: Yeah, you know, that that that's an interesting question. It is something that I've thought about. Sometimes when we when we do those caucus and we, we take a while, probably because we're we're overthinking and we're trying to get our answer just perfect, I wonder what what are the offerers thinking? Are they back there going they screwed up and they're trying to cover? you know, or sometimes it's just we're we're really just wordsmithing and, and getting a little carried away. Um so I think But, but sometimes those caucuses really allow us to be more collaborative in our answers and give a more robust answer. And sometimes it allows a contracting officer, I've heard them say, well, ask me, well, I want to say this, but can I? And then we talk it through and then they feel more confident that they can and they share more information. Um, so those, those, do have, and the caucus does have an advantage because it allows us to think through things more clearly. I do worry about the perception issue, though, because you're right, sometimes when there's a contracting officer very confidently fielding questions and answers, fielding answers right during the the debrief, I, I think an offerer would feel like, oh, okay, you know, this person's impossible to trip up. It, some of it's just pros and cons of both. Some of it's just personality driven. Some some contracting officers never want to talk without taking time to think. It doesn't mean that they're any less competent or any easier to trip up than folks who answer on their feet. It, it's just, just a stylistic approach.
0: Yeah, no right or wrong necessarily, but definitely a lot of considerations with whether you formally caucus and provide a formal answer, whether right. it's uh, more free flowing and kind of ad hoc uh, back and forth discussion. Um, Yeah, Um, I don't. Any other thoughts on best practices of uh, debriefing and the information release, or anything kind of above and beyond what the FAR requires that uh, you guys can all think of?
2: I would say, I mean, I I think it's uh, nothing really special, but to to ask for uh, you know the names and titles of everyone who would participate from the offer side, and um, and for questions in advance, like I said, so that you have some time. Um, to give some thoughtful responses on that. Um, I would also say, I guess, if if I'm the contracting officer and I'm kind of chairing it, um, I I was once misquoted because uh, someone else in the meeting made a statement that was later attributed to me in a protest. So... It's kind of like you know either there's one person speaking or you're clearly identifying yourself before you uh have any input um if you're part of the government team, if it's on a phone call, that's why it's very awkward uh really on the phone um you know if if we're all sitting face to face in a meeting, then obviously you know if you're physically leaving to caucus or you know, it's it's difficult to control um, the communication in that respect. I mean, we it is a situation where we have to control the communication. So um, it's either either you're physically present with each other, and then you're moving to another room to discuss it, or um, or you're having a, a sidebar on a separate phone call. But um, but to Melanie's point, I try to keep that uh, very brief, and and I am mindful that people are waiting for us to respond. Depends on how many questions they ask though.
0: Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's a definite absolute, but on our T4 and G vehicle, we tend to release a redacted version of the selection decision document um, to the offer, which I think they find beneficial. And often the debrief follows that or the tech eval pretty closely. The, the debrief, if we do it with a uh, like a PowerPoint and then we walk them through it, it's basically the tech eval. And I think having that transparency of being that detailed, um, I think, satisfies the, the offers uh, quite yeah. commonly. Um, and yeah.
2: I offer that in the unsuccessful offer letter, too. I try to give as much detail as I can there about the evaluation.
0: Right, right. Maybe they don't even require the debrief because I feel like they have pretty much everything just from that, um, especially right. when they see the, the ratings and the the price. Um, sometimes, you know, no matter what they could contend, uh, the decision was just so clear. Right. Yeah. Well, good. Um, any closing thoughts? Any other uh, best practices, or or anything you want to add before we uh, close our uh, session here today?
1: I think uh, just a, one other thing I would add is if you're a contractor and you're you're coming in for a debriefing, um, the FAR clearly outlines areas that we're not allowed to uh, discuss. Um, so. You know, those are, are readily available, so it's just common courtesy as well not to put the contracting team on the spot and try to probe those questions out. I mean, this is kind of a funny one, um, funny antidote or funny story, uh, and it wasn't me. It was a colleague, former colleague of mine uh, at another agency. He was involved in a very, very competitive source selection, multi, multi, hundreds of millions of dollars source selection, and the debriefing was face-to-face and had a large Table with lots of executives around it, and um, you know the procurement team just went right down through and told every single thing that the offer could have improved upon and where they had shortcomings in their proposal. And the CEO looked at the government contracting officer, and he said, "If you were me, should I fire this guy next to me?" And it put the contracting <laughs> officer on the spot in a very awkward situation. So. Well, wow, maybe he was joking. I don't know as if he really was. And it just really put the whole contracting team in an awkward uh, situation. So <laughs> I think, uh, you know, you really need to to make sure that you're asking questions that act, that actually could be and should be answered.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Good story. Um, and probably a uh, no better way to end than a funny anecdote like that. Uh, so let's uh, wrap up this episode. I hope that we covered the topic well and gave you a helpful perspective and some best practices to institute. If you'd like to share your best practices with us, please email me, uh, agenda at va.gov. And who knows, maybe we'll have a future follow-up episode on some of the best practices from around the government, contractors included. Uh, we shall see. So, Deborah, Melanie, Chuck, uh, thanks for being a part of this episode, and I wish you all the best. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. As always, we must remind you, the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media, products, or services they may provide. We thank you for listening to this episode of TAC Talks and hope you found it helpful. You may direct any questions or feedback to Mark Junda at mark.junda at va.gov. Until next time, my friends, may our contracting officers be given wide latitude to exercise business judgment. May program officials successfully manage contracts to deliver goods and services to our veterans and the American people. And may our contractors support our needs and be prosperous.